Hi there, everybody. This is Dan Trottencheck. I'd like to thank you for joining in once again with our Taking Care of Business uh, podcast. Uh, We got an interesting one coming up, too. Uh, We're going to get the opportunity to head north from Indianapolis to go to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and the worldwide headquarters for Do It Best Corporation, where we're going to sit down and chat a little bit with the Do It Best president and CEO, Dan Starr, and uh, learn what's going on in Fort Wayne and and kind of how this venerable co-op sees the industry developing and talk about some of the challenges that today's independent retailers might overcome and uh, how Do It Best can maybe help them face some of those challenges. So sit back, grab something to drink, and uh, we hope you're going to enjoy this discussion with Dan Starr. This episode of Taking Care of Business with Dan Trottenjack is being brought to you by one of our fantastic sponsors, Member Insurance. Are you seeking an insurance agent who truly understands the unique risks of your business? You can let the 47-year history and industry experience of Member Insurance go to work for you. Did you know that Member Insurance is member-owned? They offer annual dividends. Member Insurance provides superior claim service 24-7 and offers 24-hour roadside assistance. And Member Insurance even provides free risk management and free HR consultations. And this is brand new from them. They just announced that Member Insurance is offering a three-year business owner's policy with locked-in rates. So if you're a hardware store, home improvement store, you're definitely going to want to check out the services they have to offer. And to learn more about Member Insurance, please visit www.memberinsurance.com. Dan, thanks so much for uh, sitting down with us. As, uh, again, we're here with Dan Starr, President and CEO of Do It Best Corp. I appreciate you taking the time to you talk bet. to us and the Taking Care of Business podcast audience out there. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Dan. Pleased to be uh, on for today's uh, podcast and uh, thrilled to sit down with you. Great. We won't have a hard time remembering names today. Dan and Dan, it kind of, kind of. Maybe it's the next Mike and Mike. Maybe we'll have to see. We're we can go on the road talk, now. Yeah, go okay. on the road. Talk a little bit about sports or something. Uh, but, uh, but for today, why don't we stick to the home improvement industry? Absolutely. And uh, it is the middle of summertime here, and we've dialed up actually a pretty nice day for uh, Indianapolis Fort Wayne area. We've had some pretty, uh, pretty tough weather the last few weeks, and uh, and and today it's it's sunny and, and actually kind of breezy outside. Yeah, so. we hit a good one. This yeah. is good. Yeah. Weather has been uh, an interesting case for retailers all over this year. Doesn't matter if they're in Indiana or where they are in the country. It seems like weather has been a challenge uh, uh, more and more for retail these days. But but speaking of kind of challenges that uh, independent retailers are facing, why don't we start there? Um, while weather is certainly beyond our control, why don't you talk to us a little bit about some of the challenges that you see independent retailers facing out there? today and, and there's certainly their share of them. There are and you're right to identify weather. It's, it's uh, well we're both from Indiana so we're used to seeing things through the prism of how farmers do. It's never a good year for weather. Whether you're in farming or you're in home improvement I think you can always find something to complain about and we don't like to use weather as as any kind of excuse uh, but it does there's no doubt it has an influence uh, over what takes place at retail for sales in home improvement. And absolutely, there's a correlation there. Uh, leaving weather aside, uh, I think that there's a few that I would focus on. The first one is sort of that constant and continual challenge that we always face, which is in a, uh, in, in, in a world of increasingly and more readily available shopping options, there is a continual demand that folks in our space just get better and better. They need to constantly position themselves and their store as the first choice uh, for shoppers. They need to make sure that they have uh, an experience that is exceptional uh, and that the shopper then sees them as their best choice every time. And that's kind of how we interpret things, where our aim is to be first choice and best choice. First choice, make sure that they have the mix of the right products, the right price, the right services, reach consumers when they're ready to buy in the way they want to be reached uh, and make it easy for them. And then it's the delivery on the experience Mm -hmm. to make them the best choice, to make them come back, to drive loyalty in the right way. Uh, That challenge, I don't see getting any easier. It's just the continual progression of a tougher and tougher competitive environment at retail. Uh, the, The second one that I would 
point to, and I, I think this is the one most frequently mentioned by our members here of late, and, and that is the need for talent, uh, the oh, yeah. need for quality staff, for talent on the payroll uh, that, are, that are trained and ready to contribute. That's hitting everybody, I think, at this time really hard. When you've got low, low, low unemployment and you've got competition for talent, uh, it just, it's just going to hit you everywhere. So. Well, let's talk about that sure. for a second. Then I want to go on to something else because, you know, we, we certainly hear that. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, um, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here because one of the challenges that we certainly see is this somewhat of a shifting paradigm when you talk about things like convenience and customer service. And it becomes, for, for independent retailers who hang their hat on customer service, that employee at the store level is such a critical component of, of delivering on that customer service, yeah. yet it's getting harder and harder to find and retain those employees. Yeah, and I don't think that problem's going away for that very reason. Yeah. Um, it is such a critical thing. Uh, people tend to look to their independent, I think, anytime they want to have uh, good advice. They want to come to someone who's a knowledgeable staff member, who really understands product, who really understands a project, to walk them all the way through. They typically gravitate uh, as that first choice uh, to an independent retailer. And they, they walk in the door and they have an expectation that is somewhat heightened. Uh, and that's a good thing, right? Uh, we need to continue to deliver on an experience that creates that kind of expectation. But you're right. The problem is living up to that expectation is getting tougher and tougher when you've got employment concerns like we have right now. So the trained, knowledgeable, uh, ready to uh, ready to assist in any way possible staff member, boy, that's getting harder and harder to come by. Well, and, and so really what it comes down to in a lot of ways is retention. Yes. Is being that employer of choice for your area and saying, once I get someone it doesn't matter if they start when they're 16 or 60. If I get someone who proves to be a valuable asset, we got to do whatever we can to keep them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is, you know, putting a finger on that and identifying it as an area of concern uh, is something that that our members, at least, readily identify with, and you're you're preaching to the choir. They are, they're already so, in some ways, I think, concerned about that. Uh, it's 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 preaching to the choir. Yeah. They understand that issue. They and they're looking for good ways to get their arms around that. How do I how do I engage? How do I create that kind of culture of employer of choice? How do I retain? As you said, probably right. the biggest issue: retain that talent, uh, because there is more and more competition ready to raid uh, a knowledgeable salesperson. Oh boy, that's that's a precious commodity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it gets harder and harder. Well, let let, let me ask you this. Um, oh wait a minute, Dan. I got to interrupt you now. I got to oh, go back to that first question because okay. there's one more. There's one more that really you look at the last year, and it has affected all of us so strongly. When you think of challenges, I hope that we don't revisit this kind of circumstance again. But we are all living in an environment where we're one tweet away oh. uh, from our commander in chief in creating. Uh, supply chain challenges that we just have not had to grapple with in a while. So the t- the the whole atmosphere around tariff and supply chain, it throws. Now I know that we're talking for the most part challenges at retail, and it does come all the way through. I think it particularly is troubling for those of us who manage the si- supply chain from sure. uh, global sourcing all the way through. Uh, but I tell you what, it has put ripples uh, across what takes place over the course of the last eight months at least. Well, I'll chain. tell you, interesting that you bring that up because we've done some surveys lately with mm-hmm. retailers talking about tariffs. And it, with one smaller group that we, we are involved with, the issue of tariffs. Now, these are retailers. These yeah. aren't distributors. These aren't manufacturers. Came up as the top concern going into the back half of the year. And, and it's really concerning from a broad sense that that now these are pretty sophisticated um, independent home improvement retailers, so they they're definitely forward looking. But the fact that we would be going into um, a, a, a time period where something seemingly as arbitrary as, as tariffs, and, and we certainly don't want to get into the to the to the political discussion of tariffs, but something like that could interrupt what what really should be a strong and healthy growth period. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it presents challenges. And, and I think that, uh, well, there's, there's, there's 
two very interesting problems associated with it. One is, of course, maintaining pricing on the way up so that you are not creating a situation where you're losing money and not even aware of it. So you have got to maintain your pricing. And um, you, you look at that and you go, well, that should be a relatively easy thing to do. Well, it's not. And, and you could look at the example just a, a weeks ago of Lowe's conducting an earnings call where they were acknowledging the fact that they struggled with this very issue and lost a ton of margin in the process. Yeah. So the independent that is out there, they need tools to be able to grapple with that. They need to protect their bottom line. So that's one. Uh, the other interesting thing I, th I fear is what happens on the way back down. Yeah. Uh, as tough as it is to go up through uh, tariff application through and across the supply chain, the, uh, the race to back to the bottom on pricing might be a rocky one. Yeah. And that's one that I'm awfully concerned about and we're focused on uh, to make sure that we're monitoring it as closely as we possibly can. Uh, of course, in terms of what we anticipate in the way of tariffs, but uh, just as importantly, when we start to see those shifts, how quickly is the adjustment on the way back down? You don't want to create competitive price concerns. Oh, sure. And so we've got to be able to position our members for success. Do, do you think it helps at all that it was just a few years ago that we went through some of the challenges with steel? Because I remember conversations with retailers back then where they were talking about, you know, I would buy a pallet of nails and it would cost me X amount of dollars. And then the price of steel shot up so high, yes. and it was demand-driven at the time. But the price of steel that that there's no, I couldn't buy a, a you know a quarter pallet of nails for the price that I was selling the nails at. So they couldn't they they couldn't follow quickly enough with their pricing to raise prices enough to to be able to replenish. Right, exactly right, and that's you can get caught quickly on either side of that. Yeah, on either side of that equation, and I think that they were folks are used to it who have a practice and a uh, a book of business where uh, they understand commodity pricing and how that is volatile and they sure. have learned uh, for the sake of survival to follow it quickly. It is an interesting thing uh, though when you look at the breadth of product that is going to be hit or has already been hit uh, by tariff. You're not looking at just commodity and, mm -hmm. and easily tracked pricing of commodity that goes up and down. You're talking about things that you know a 25% swing. Right. Well that that wipes out all the margin that you might have expected, and then some. Uh, well, especially some on highly competitive items like, say, barbecue grills or Ex something that's that that, that you know exactly uh, have they're that so much thin product. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The the price is so high and the margin so thin. You could get if if you're in the wrong spot and you don't maintain your pricing in the right way. So, so what's a retailer to do? What what what. what well, we would, of course, adv you know, selfishly advise them to make sure that as our member that they are um, taking our pricing that we uh, suggest right. and maintaining their margins as they do so. Yeah. Uh, so close communication is, the, is, we would say, the cure-all to that and making sure you're partnering with somebody who is monitoring that carefully and closely. So one of the things that we're making sure, you know, and, and we have lots of other competitors we can point to in the industry, some are faring better than others. Mm -hmm. um, I think on the way up, we have done a very effective job uh, at managing that in order to protect member margin and make sure they're not going to be surprised at the end of the year with a rebate from their co-op that is somehow great, you know, far less than what they thought it would be because of the impact of tariffs. That's not going to happen. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, so we've got weather, we've got competitive employing, <laughs> uh, we've got tariffs. So lots of challenges out there for, for independent retailers. Um, let's talk about another one that didn't necessarily come up, but the, the concept, I don't know if you have heard, Dan, but brick-and-mortar retail is dead if you listen to a lot of people out there. Um, so what, what? well, now that it's dead, what are these guys going to do? Yeah, I don't know. I'm saying that, of course, sarcastically. Of but, uh, course. But, and, and, and you can say it sarcastically because the number of times you've heard that. Right. Is uh, it, it it verges on the ridiculous, but there is at, there is a point to that, which is you need to be uh, wary of competition in its many forms, and retail has absolutely suffered some significant uh, hits as a result of the competitive pressure that has come, of course, from the likes of Amazon and the online environment. So the impact can't be denied. At the same time, you could kind of look at that and say. Yes, um, however, it's just, it's just a similar theme on a very old game. It's just, 
if you look back to history, people love to point to Montgomery Ward. People love to mm -hmm. you know, point back to Sears. Sears doesn't start out as a retailer. They started out uh, effectively delivering product in, yeah. in, in that same kind of vein. Uh, they exploited the notion of free delivery and leveraging postal systems in the 1800s. Right. This is not, this, this is a modern twist on an old theme, so yeah. let's not overreact to it. Um, and at the same time, it does highlight that, that incredible pressure that exists. It, it, there is undoubtedly an impact. Uh, and so learning a little bit from that and creating then the the experience. That's why we talk an awful lot about the retail experience. There's, a, there's an awful lot to be valued in that. And people are always going to want that, right? Right. Uh, and, and I think part of the impact, you, you, you talk about a paradigm shift. The, the impact that Amazon has had is, is an interesting one. I think that they were successfully able to identify the two greatest uh, negatives or pinch points that existed for uh, mail order or online type shopping. And that was, uh, I don't wanna have to pay for delivery, uh, and what if I don't like it, you know? Yeah. So they completely uh, took those out of the equation by saying, well, it's free, and uh, we'll give you the box to mail it back in. Right. And it'll be free to you, it won't cost you anything, we won't even ask questions about it. Well, that is a very powerful way to attract people. Uh, take that frictionless environment uh, and allow them to do it at home. That is a wonderful thing. That doesn't mean that retail lacks competitive advantages, though. There are so many competitive advantages uh, to be able to have a face-to-face -face interaction, to be able to wow them with customer service, especially in our environment where you have expertise-based selling that can mm -hmm. take place. That goes right back to the same point of having knowledgeable and informed staff. When you have that, whether they're coming in for a product or a project, Expertise-based selling can do some things uh, that are critically important. And that in-store environment is one where you can go from ideation all the way to completion of a project with one visit. That's tough to replicate in an online world. Well, absolutely. And there's, uh, I mean, there's something to the fact that when you look at even the retailers within this industry that, that are leading the online sales game in, in Home Depot and Lowe's, the highest percentage of their sales are buy online, pick up in store because customers still want that face-to-face -face sort of validation. Right. Is this product right? Can I can I bring it back if it's not the right size and that's that right. sort of thing, which is a little bit different when you're buying a book or a toy or, or something like that. No, yeah. that's exactly right. And and that's why I think we can look at that and say, well, there's an impact. There's no need. We, we don't need to deny that there's a strong impact uh, within our industry, but there are also some advantages, like if you compare it to clothing retailers, uh, that's just been decimating mm -hmm. uh, to the model of business because sure. you don't have a similar uh, sort of hook that enables you to offer something that cannot be replicated in an online world. Yeah. And I, I, I was fortunate enough a few weeks ago to see a, a, a lady speak by the name of Barbara Kahn, and forgive me if I got her name right or wrong, but she's a professor at the Wharton School, and she was talking about this, and she said, she had a couple great quotes. One of them, and I'm paraphrasing, was brick-and-mortar retail isn't dead, bad brick-and-mortar retail is dead. That's a great way to say it. And, and if it causes everybody to raise their game, well then, so much the better. This is... Uh, being a uh, being being in a competitive business environment in the in the marketplace in most cities in the United States of America is a tough way to go, yeah. uh, because the competitive threats are everywhere. There's somebody out hustling you all the time, and so you cannot bring complacency, right, uh, to the sure. to the marketplace. And I think that that's a great way to say it. Um, brick and mortar isn't dead. Uh, lazy mm -hmm. uh, brick and mortar, passionless uh, brick and mortar is well she had followed that up by saying if you create a unique and shoppable physical environment customers will come to your store and and i thought it was so applicable to what you guys what we try and preach to to home improvement independent retailers is you've got to differentiate you've got to understand how to make your business something unique and something that customers are going to want to come to shop Yes, and uh, which which kind of brings me to a, to another statement. Going back to what we touched on a little bit earlier, 
whenever I get an opportunity to talk to retail groups, I'll, I'll always say to independent retailers, how is it that you differentiate your business? And, and unfortunately, the answer hasn't changed much in the 25 years that I've been in the industry. It's usually, well, convenience and product knowledge um, and, and service. But what I worry about, Dan, is, is I do think, you know, using this term again, there's been a paradigm shift in that I'll just put it to you this way. If, if you tell me, well, we deliver great customer service because we know our customer's name, Amazon knows a heck of a lot more about me than my name. They know about my, they know my name. They know what I bought last time. They know, they know what I like to buy when I buy something else. They know all their data will tell what other customers are likely to buy. They'll make suggestions to me, all those. So, so there has been a change in these concepts that really independent retailers would hang their hats on, on service and convenience. And, and, and Amazon has really changed that game. So how do we get, how do you guys get retailers to understand that you really have to come strong and you have to come with a unique presentation to really understand that? You know, a yeah. great example is you were talking about returns and you walk into so many stores and the biggest sign you see is behind their service counter that says no returns, absolutely no returns without a receipt. Right. Amazon doesn't ask me for a receipt. No. Amazon just tells me, you know, just sometimes they even say, don't worry about returning the product. We'll just go ahead and credit your account. Mm -hmm. You know, so how do we get retailers into this new mindset? Yeah, that is a t and you point out all the reasons why they are a formidable uh, competitor uh, in the retail space. Those are those are absolutely compelling offerings. Um, at the same time, it doesn't mean that a customer experience it is different, mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't mean that you're lacking for anything when it comes to creating a customer experience uh, in store that can rival sure. that. Otherwise, Starbucks wouldn't exist. Absolutely. I, I mean, I can point to just as many examples for creating a kind of consumer environment where people want to go. And I could, I could argue not everybody wants to spend, you know, an entire day in their basement ordering product <laughs> just right. to sit in, you know, sit in their jammies and, and order and have it delivered. Yeah. Most people want to get out of the house. Most people have projects to do. Most people want to stay active. Most people... And you can play to that. You can also say the same thing about data. The data is very useful, but one of the most alarming things is you have this idea within the capturing of data. You just take a look at news stories that come out and some of the fear that exists about the extent to which privacy is being invaded uh, for a, an agenda that may or may not fit the best interests of the consumer. Sure. So whether it's the, you know, Alexa recording devices that have very difficult, you know, purge requirements in order right. to, in yeah. order to get rid of that, there are, there's a basket of negatives that come along with those positives. So I, I don't mean to suggest that they aren't very powerful tools. What I'm saying is some of the things that are a great benefit uh, have a little bit of baggage with them. You could say the same thing in retail. You can you can do it well, you can do it poorly. When it's done well, I don't believe that there's an adequate substitute for it. When it's done really well, uh, I, I stack them up against the best that sure. Amazon has to offer. I really believe that our members, as, as, as innovative as they are, have the ability and the wherewithal to compete, and they don't have to do it necessarily in terms of price. They can. But they don't have to hit the lowest common denominator and say, we accept all returns and we're going to give you a lower price than you can get on Amazon in order to beg for the business. They can actually do some things to be competitive at retail and then deliver it on, a, on an experience that demands loyalty. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you look at someone, a, a, a member like Pat Sullivan, who we profiled on our other podcast series, his stores create such an experience when you go in there, it's really totally unique to his marketplace. It is, and and it it becomes an event to go to his stores. Yeah, and that it, it can't be replicated in an online experience. It can't be. Pat, first of all, Pat's a joy to listen to anytime Absolutely. you want. Anytime you want to talk to him. But on top of that, you're, that's exactly right. He's going to find those core departments where when he's in it. He's really in it. Yeah. He's going to own that department. If it's outdoor living, he is going to own that and own it in a big way. And he could have people just come there 
to experience what that looks like or get ideas for what that can look like in their backyard. Right. Uh, and then he's got every product under the sun available to make it a reality. Yeah. Uh, that is very, very hard to duplicate. The touch and there are certain products that require a touch and feel element to yeah. them, right? That's a great, I think that's a great example to bring up is Sullivan's. And there are so many other examples oh, of sure. that that we could point to, but that's that's a that's a wonderful one to yeah. dwell on. And and for those of you listeners who haven't uh, haven't learned about Sullivan Hardware in here in Indianapolis, make sure you look them up and take a look at what they're doing because it's 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 truly impressive. Hey everybody, before we go on to the next segment of our podcast, I just wanted to make sure everybody listening knows that if you're an independent home improvement retailer in the United States or Canada, you're already a member of the North American Retail Hardware Association. And so that means if you're a hardware store, home center, or lumber yard, and you're independently owned, you're already a member of NRHA. And the NRHA has been in existence since 1900 and serves its members in a variety of ways, from Hardware Retailing Magazine and our two podcast series to exclusive research and events, the association is here to help you become better and more profitable business owners. So we encourage you to make sure you take advantage of the services that are available to you that can help you better compete. To learn more about what NRHA does for you, make sure you visit us at www.nrha.org. We're talking about change here, and we've talked a lot about retail change. Let's 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 go in a different direction here and talk about the other side of the industry and distribution. And there's certainly certainly some changes taking place in the distribution environment within the home improvement industry. Um, and 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 you guys um, are a cooperative, uh, and this this at one point and, and still to a certain point is an industry dominated by this kind of cooperative mentality and cooperative structure. Um, but that's changed, obviously, with with what uh, what what's happened with with, with Oracle kind of ascending in 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 uh, prominence with the industry. What just happened with True Value and in, in, in stepping away from from the the traditional cooperative model. Um, what how does the role of a, a co-op play in today's industry? And what are what what are the what are uh, what are some of the ways you guys view it as an asset and and uh, still a really viable business structure within the industry? Yeah, happy to. Happy to hit that. I I look at um, the co-op structure itself, and it's not going to surprise you, Dan, to hear me say I think it's absolutely a viable uh, form of doing business. It's very tax efficient, uh, and it also brings with it a lot of other benefits. I'll touch on those in just a second. Put that aside for a second. It's not surprising I would say, oh, man, the co-op model. It's a great model. (laughs) Uh, of course, I would say that. <laughs> if Leave you said that differently, aside. we might go in a different direction. We'd be concerned. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, put that aside for a second, and and let me focus on, um, on on any uh, wholesaler uh, that is effective at doing what they do. Uh, I don't believe that the form of business is going to dictate whether or not they're effective. They can be a co-op. They can be a C corp. They could be uh, they could be a limited liability company. They could they could have private equity ownership, they could have private ownership, they could have public ownership. That The form of entity means so little, I think, in whether or not uh, that wholesale distribution company is uh, going to be one that carries out its responsibilities with excellence. So let me just let me just put that sure. out there and say I, I don't think that's the sole determinant. Now let's come back to what, what makes the co-op so special. Um, for for us, uh, I think one of the things that distinguishes us and makes it such a valuable vehicle is the alignment that it creates uh, from the owner uh, to the organization uh, to the employee uh, that we the employee of the co-op, and then to complete the circle right back around uh, to the member owner. There's no other form of ownership that creates that. Uh, it, it, I could talk. I could extol the benefits of one layer of taxation and what a great deal that is. <laughs> yeah. Everybody loves a single layer of taxation. Yeah. Who wouldn't want that? Uh, I could talk about the fact that, no, having a co-op is not somehow going to inhibit you from making capital moves or, or, or you know, having adequate capital to do business. We have never suffered from a a lack of capital as an organization. Mm-hmm. We have access to as much capital as we need to expand or make changes. 
Uh, so I've heard that kind of comment before. That just doesn't make any sense. Uh, we are a very fiscally prudent company, and so we have access to as much capital as we could possibly want. Um, so it comes back in my mind to this unique aspect of being so member-driven, so member-focused. Our board is comprised entirely of members of the co-op. Uh, 12-person board, all of them understand what it's like uh, to be a member owner, a dealer, a retailer, uh, own a lumber yard. They understand exactly what it's like to manage those issues. And then uh, not only do we serve them by making sure that there's a connection point and they have a line of sight to how we lay out a strategy. What's our 10-year strategy going forward and how well does it align to the interests and needs of the member? It doesn't get informed by an investment interest that is different than the operator, different than the retailer. Mm -hmm. It is informed by those very same concerns. So our management team is directly responsive to those needs. And then to the extent that we are successful, to the extent our members are successful, to the extent that we can put them in a position to compete and win at retail, to the extent we can align all the fundamentals and then add to that, uh, you know, a, a culture that supports that for the long term, uh, we're going to find that we'll be successful as a result of that. Our, our success we kind of look at as derivative of the primarily the focus on making sure that the member is successful. And I think we have a pretty good history of having delivered on that promise. We've got, um, uh, you look at the, uh, the, the gross profit that we enjoy uh, from doing business with our members. We have a greater percentage of gross profit that finds its way to the bottom of the income statement in the form of rebate that is then returned at the end of the year to our members. Uh, that is a more significant percentage of gross profit than any other co-op by far. Uh, so I can look at all that and say the co-op form enables a lot of that to occur. Can you be successful outside of the environment? Absolutely. Uh, you can. Um, we've chosen it because we think that it gives us a vehicle to efficiently use capital, efficient taxation, and it then gives us, on top of all that, tremendous alignment from ownership uh, to management and then back to, to membership as well. So I, for us, it's been a tremendous positive. And I, I'm, I'm not sure, even, even though you've got other folks in the, uh, in the industry that have chosen a different form, that, that doesn't mean that it is somehow outdated. You have, sure. you have a couple pretty strong co-ops still uh, for all the right reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you know, you, you, you take a look at the position or the, or the changes that have taken place in the distribution sector. And there's a lot of things that, you know, if you would ask me 10 years ago, True Value wouldn't be a, a traditional co-op. I would say, oh, wow, that, that, that I couldn't see that coming. What are some things that, that, that maybe have happened in the industry or you see in the industry today, whether at the distribution level or at the retail industry, that have surprised you that you just say, man, I, well, I didn't see that one coming? <laughs> uh, I think... I. I th it, it's, it's, one of, it's one of scale, I suppose, mm. because a lot of these things you see, I, I think you might look at them and say, well, I guess, I guess at one level this, this wouldn't have shocked me or it wouldn't have surprised me. Um, but, but one thing I'll mention is this, the scale and breadth of the amount of M&A um, work mm -hmm. that has hit our industry yeah. has been surprising, and it's at every level. You've got, it, you've got consolidation at the, uh, at the manufacturer level, You've got consolidation uh, at the wholesale level. You've got consolidation at the retail level. And a lot of those folks crossing paths along the way. Uh, the, the amount of that, to me, has been a, a little bit of a shock. Um, and perhaps it's just because we come from an industry where, you know, some of that occurred, but, but the, uh, the extent of it, perhaps it just wasn't as pronounced as it is today. Sure. I mean, when you look back, um, again, uh, uh, two decades, three decades ago, just the sheer number of distributors and manufacturers within this industry was so much. Now, the volume in the industry has certainly increased, but the number of players has sharply decreased. And, and we're really starting to see that at retail. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it seems to me, and you guys might see it differently, but it seems to us that there is certainly a trend of maybe not number of storefronts declining precipitously, but the number of owners is certainly consolidating. And you're seeing it seems, again, more one 
individual or one group owning more and more stores. Instead of having one store, maybe the norm is becoming two, three, four, five, eight, twelve stores. Right. Um, is do you think you guys are kind of seeing that at retail oh, as well? Oh, we absolutely yeah. are seeing yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, and we're not immune to that, and we're, we're seeing that as well. And that's going to have an impact on the independent. That's, that's Part of what I love about working in this industry is I love serving the needs of the independent. I just, uh, maybe that just resonates not only with our industry, but with what I love about this country, too. We are such a great, uh, you know, business-friendly environment for uh, just a... a, a, a a capitalist-based system that encourages the private use of capital to go out and raise and, and run a right. successful business. And we have so many examples across this country of our members who have a family legacy that is building a successful business that they can then pass on to the next generation. Uh, that has fostered so many stories of just uh, just a tremendous benefit, not only to the family, but to the community at large. There's some great stories that exist for that. And that's part of what I just love about this business. Mm -hmm. And I want to see that continue. Uh, so it is a little bit concerning that you see a dwindling number overall right. uh, within independence. And then you tend to see that shifting just a little bit uh, to uh, single investor environments, whether that be the private equity sphere or even folks coming in to buy up retail right. market share. Yeah. Well, and, and certainly what plays a role in a lot of that is just the challenge of uh, generational transfer of businesses. Absolutely. The succession challenge. And, 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 the, and the concentration of their investment. Yeah. I'm sure that for lots of families, they get to a stage where they, they, the, the ongoing nature of the investment, which dwarfs everything else in their net worth, they want to monetize that a little bit. And, and so there's a risk there. you got to recognize what drives some of those, those challenges. Sure. It's real. It's absolutely real. Absolutely. And so working with them to make sure that they have a way to stay in the business or working with them to make sure they have a viable path uh, to monetize their investment. Either way, I think you're doing them a great service uh, if you can help them with that. Where do you see, uh, you know, we're sitting here in 2019, where do you see the, the industry over the next 10 years? And, and in relation to that, how, how do you think, how does Do It Best help the industry in a positive direction over this same period? What do you have to do to help these retailers? And, and, and what are some changes if we're sitting here in 2029 doing a podcast that's somehow being beamed direct to the cerebral cortex of, <laughs> of retailers? Dan, that's quite a setup. <laughs> I tell you what, that's, that's quite a deal. And if what you're looking for is me to come that's with that. That's called a softball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, real softball. If you're looking for me to come to that, that, uh, that one idea that's, uh, you know, yeah, totally out waiting. of left field, you know, catch you by surprise. No, I, I think what I would say is we're, we're going to be surprised. I think that as I look down the road 10 years, there's a couple things that I feel pretty confident we're going to have. One is I think we're going to have consumers who are significantly invested in home improvement, repair, and remodel. Right. We, we enjoy, I think, uh, being in a space where there is a very, very robust economic engine behind all of that. I don't think that that is going away. I think that we're going to see that continue uh, to grow. And I think we're also going to find that there, are going, that there will be uh, innovative new ways to reach that consumer and that consumer's dollar. We're going to find people scrambling and competing to get that increased investment that continues to take place in people's homes. And um, I don't see any of that going away. I do see increased pressure around all those things. And to me, I view that as a tremendous opportunity. It's an invitation to play a role in a great industry because I do see that it's going to continue to be robust for those who are willing to really throw themselves into the kind of business that requires demands that people play their A game. Let's go back to another example, Pat Sullivan. Um, I, I look at the, the way that Pat brings uh, sort of a, a competitive atmosphere to execution at retail and say, he's going to continue to win an environment like that. Yeah. I don't think you, you've, you've got, he's already has big box competition. He already has 
uh, Amazon playing a significant role. Indianapolis has overnight delivery. That's not new, right. you know. He's going to compete and he's going to do well because he's he does an excellent job at at those core fundamentals in the areas where he's going big. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. Well, you, you talk about that, and you talk about 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. 10 years from now, the millennial and the Gen Zers are going to be, millennials specifically, prime home buying years if they already aren't entering their prime home buying years by, by, um, by old <laughs> measurement. Um, and Gen Z has come along. What are, what are retailers, what are brick-and-mortar retailers, what do home improvement retailers have to do to kind of earn first the attention of and then the loyalty of of, and this is another one of those real easy questions. Yeah, I'm it sure is. You Thanks. Have the perfect answer for it. Um, but what what do you have to do? It's uh, it's funny too because number one, they're going to try to reach out to those generations as a new customer. Uh, but we were just talking about reaching out to those same folks as employees. They've got it on both right. sides of the equation, right? And one of the things that I think you, you, you know, it, it, this is an easy area for people to grossly overgeneralize, absolutely, and and uh, and, and oversimplify uh, the needs and motivations of generations. I I, I think that that's a little overdone. Um, having said that, let's just play right into it. <laughs> <laughs> let's embrace that. It happens yeah, okay, anyway. Yeah. Let's do it anyway. Um, one of the things that impresses me about that younger generation is what looks like, you tell me if you see it too, it, it looks like a pervasive sort of uh, belief in, in altruistic living or, or purpose-driven purpose yeah. living. It, that without having to be coached into it, they seem to be already adopting the idea that their existence, their work, it should reflect more than just the uh, the the get earning a paycheck. Right. It 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 should be associated with an organization they can be proud to be associated with. That it reflects their right. morals, values, ideals. Um, that it's going to enable them to become better, whether that's through development or training, uh, or a clear path. These are really interesting thoughts. I don't know what you looked like when you came out of school. Uh, if you were just looking for a job, <laughs> yeah. But but it is a very interesting environment right now, and it's it's you deal with that both as the employer, uh, but then also how to market to these same individuals as potential shoppers. It seems to me that they have the capacity for a type of loyalty in their shopping behavior that might not have existed before, they, or, or or at least to this degree. I am overgeneralizing, sure. But don't you see a sim- that that kind of dynamic at well, work for that next generation? Absolutely. And, and and another thing that I think is is kind of this myth that's been created is I hear so so many times that well you, you know they don't know how to do DIY projects or they're scared of that. And I just say, have you looked at Pinterest? Right. I mean, there which is being driven by the millennial generation and so on, and they're doing these fantastic home improvement things, these these incredible craft ideas, all these kind of things that I know, I mean, we didn't do that. Now, we might have fixed a toilet or something like that, <laughs> and, and but, but I couldn't put together or come out of my mind with some of these uh, amazing home improvement decor and craft right. ideas that you see on something like a Instagram or Pinterest that is really being dri- dri- driven by these millennials. I see the same thing that you do. I mean, the, we're talking about the, um, this is, this is my this is my children's generation at this point, <laughs> Dan. Right. I'm getting to be old. But, <laughs> but it is interesting because they also are very gifted at tapping into a base of knowledge that they know exists out there sure. beyond their own experience. Right. So, for example, I've got a couple sons who decided, I, I want to play the guitar. What did they do? They don't go get lessons from someone. Sure. They tap into uh, a, a, a massive uh, toolbox of education that exists in YouTube videos right. alone, right? Right, and uh, they can become very gifted in a short period of time. They're not afraid of, of right. doing something different that they've never done before, and they know exactly where to go to get the the right kind of advice and to bounce that against other folks. You know, they, they they'll go sample a number of different things. That same thing exists from a project or a product standpoint. Sure. Uh, as soon as you get out there and you start searching around on YouTube, you don't need to teach them how to do that. 
Well, and some of it looks at the perspective, because I think you see a lot of that same thing in the workplace, and it really depends on the perspective you take when you look at it, because some ways you could say, well, these millennials, they just want to do things that they haven't earned the right to do yet. Or you could look at it and say, they're not afraid to ask for responsibility. And you, you, it just so much of it depends on the tack you take as an employer um, uh, in in that case as how you respond to that. That's exactly Either you right. say, well, you got to go back and earn the right to do that or – Hey, maybe I let this ambitious young person try that and see what they can do. Right. You know. We're all challenged by what we see in others, right? And and sometimes for good, sometimes for ill. It's an interesting thing because I do think that next generation often gets a an unfair or a bad rap for being impatient. For well, hey, right. I've been here for six months, where's my promotion? How could <laughs> yeah. Get up out of that chair. It's time right. for me to take over. You know, they, they get that kind of bad rap where you you really could look at that the other way. Just yeah. as you said. Uh, why wouldn't you want to tap into ambition? Why wouldn't you want a little bit of impatience? Um, I would much rather have someone who's impatient for more than someone who's complacent for what they have. I, I just, you know what I mean? You, no, you, absolutely. The idea of somebody who... You'd quit, rather be trying to hold them back than trying to push them out. Absolutely. Yeah. I, the worst thing you can have is somebody who, who quits on the job but doesn't tell you and just stays yeah. collecting a paycheck. Absolutely. Nobody, <laughs> nobody wants that. I'd much rather have someone who's, who's right. uh, impatient for more and driven by cause. Yeah. Well, and I'd imagine at any kind of genera- major generational changes, you know, when, when your generation, my generation was coming up, our parents and grandparents were like, oh, these kids and their heavy metal music and their, their you know. I'm getting a picture of you Walkman now. Walkman. You're you <laughs> yeah. long-haired, yeah. heavy no, metal I never, guy. I've pretty much had this haircut most of my life. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I think that's exactly right. We're talking about things that are um, uh, probably more relevant to the, to the age group you are in, not the fact that you're a millennial versus right. an Xer versus sure. a, you know, whatever. I think it's just at different stages of life, you encounter similar concerns and challenges. Uh, And so this group, they will get married. They will get their first house. They will have a child. Guess what's going to happen to their concerns? Yes. Uh, They'll become intimately aware of what it takes to do a few changes. They'll become intimately familiar, and they'll use Pinterest, (laughs) and they'll find out painting projects, and they'll do all kinds of other things to improve their home. Right. That's what people do. Lawns will still need to be mowed. Lawns will need <laughs> yes. to be mowed. Trees will be planted. Absolutely. Uh, green goods will sell. Um, you're, you're still going to have small appliance. You're still going to have paint. You're still going to have plumbing. You're still going to have electrical. You're going to have all these things that touch and concern their daily living. All right. Uh, the last easy question I have oh, for good. you. I know this is a real simple one. If you could let retailers know one thing, just what, what is the one secret that you could let them know about how to make their operations more successful. I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that question by violating its its premise. I'm I thought you were gonna say, I'm gonna answer that with a question. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I won't ask you a question. I, I um, it, it, I'm gonna say just one thing. Okay, I'll give you two. Okay, um, oh, that's fine. <laughs> I think that, um, and this might sound. I I hope it, Dan. I hope it doesn't come across as overly simplistic. But I I think that you start at this base that I I think most of our members would agree with, which is you, you've got to execute with excellence on the fundamentals. Uh, when you practice at retail, you've got to have the right items in the right place at the right time with the right price served up and, and, and managed by the right people. You've got to create the basics. And I, I look at that. We were talking earlier about uh, sports. I, I, love, I love sports. I particularly uh, love football. But I think I could point to how you win championships in sports. I love the kind of character of uh, John Wooden uh, or Vince Lombardi. These guys preached nothing but fundamentals. Right. Fundamentals wins championships. You learn how to tie your shoes. You learn how to, right. you know, gentlemen, this is a football. These are speeches that these coaches gave to introduce the concept that most of the winning takes place because you care enough to practice the fundamentals and do them with excellence. And you will find, surprisingly, that when day in, day out, you execute on the fundamentals with, it. with that kind of excellence, you're going to win. So I, I, I really look at that as hitting the fundamentals as well as you possibly can. But then uh, that second thing would be to add to that, if you can get the right people in the right seat on the bus, 
within your organization. Someone who absolutely loves helping people. That's the kind of person who falls in love with retail. They love helping people. They love solving a challenge. They're curious about what people are working on. They want to point them in the right direction. They're not happy unless they've enabled them to complete the project, not just by the one thing that they came right. in for. These are people that fall in love with retail and that are passionate about helping the business succeed. I do think that that gives way to an exceptional retail experience. So if you can, if you can execute on the fundamentals and then add to that someone with a passion for helping people, I really think that's the secret to making sure your, your business is going to be successful. Simple. It's that simple. <laughs> it's one of those things. It's how easy is that to say? Yeah. All right, now go implement it. Yeah, right, right. Sure, it's, it's the devil's always in the details of it, but, but it, is, it, is, it is pretty simple when you think about it. It, it, it. it is simple when you think about it. And I love to go back to those coaches and say, yeah, but nobody else was winning championships. Like right. these guys did. Five championships yeah. in 10 years is a pretty stellar achievement. That happened not because there was no competition. It happened because you had someone who was fanatical about winning. Uh, somebody who was fanatical about the details. Uh, those kinds of things, yeah, there, there's no easy substitute uh, for, for, for any of that. Yeah. And it is easy to say and hard to do, that's true. Uh, but it's well worth it. Uh, and besides that, you're going to have a much more enjoyable work environment when you try to build those pieces in place. Sure. Who wants to come to work and be bored right. and have no customers? I'd much rather be busy. Yeah. Absolutely. Dan Starr, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and, and would look forward to sometime down the road having you back again and talking about uh, all the things that have changed since the last time we talked. So Excellent. Appreciate Excellent. your time today. Thank you. You bet. Thank you, right. Dan. Thanks. Today's episode is brought to you by Sacrete. Are you looking to add quality concrete, mortar, and stucco mixes, as well as repair and specialty items to your product lineup? Sacrete provides the tools you need to run a better business, whether that's through exceptional customer support, sales and marketing tools, varied product assortments, or just finding reliable products. Sacrete offers knowledgeable retail experts that understand the needs of your store. To learn more, visit www.sacrete.com slash hardware retailing.